If you're a regular listener to Counterpoint, you'll know we have an abiding interest in Adam Smith. This is because of his enormous contribution to our civilization, but also because most of us don't really know all that much about him, and what we do know is often wrong. Our first guest has been on the program before. He's Nicholas Gruen. Nicholas used to work for the Productivity Commission. He now does various other things, including running a consultancy called Lateral Economics. Now, he's been reading Smith, and I thought this was a great opportunity for us to get a summary of one of the most important thinkers of all time. Nicholas, welcome back. Hi, Michael. I want to go into some of the misrepresentation in the detail in a moment, but let's start at a very general level. Why does Smith matter? What did he give us? Well, I think he is part of the great Enlightenment uh, quest to take uh, one view of society, which was the Christian view of society, which was that there was self-interest on one side and there was benevolence on the other, uh, self-interest and the devil on one side and benevolence on, and God on the other. And the whole Enlightenment project, uh, to some extent, and certainly Smith's project, was to try, was really to say, well, if we're going to, leave everything to benevolence, we're going to keep going the way we've been going and it's a bit of a miserable world. And it was about trying to harness self-interest to the greater good and that's the great contribution that he made. He wrote an enormous amount uh, on the subject. Is it possible to identify one central idea? Well that to me is the central idea that self-interest is something which shouldn't be, we shouldn't hold the cross up to it like Dracula, like Dracula in a horror movie. We should try and tame it and turn it to good and the idea is that self-interest is an elemental part of our nature so if we can get it on side we're going to be cooking with gas as the old <laughs> expression goes as opposed to constantly saying to people be better be more benevolent we would tried that for 200 years 2000 years or more and that wasn't getting us so very far. I guess you would have thought he was going for a more realistic approach. Maybe. Yes, oh, that's one way of putting it. Yes. Do you have any ideas where this came from? Was, was this his idea or did he draw it from anywhere? Um, well, at the time there was a lot of debate. I, I, I guess I would feel that he's somewhere in the middle between Rousseau, who's running around saying that people are inherently good and society is corrupting them, and the Christian church, which uh, about which I've just given you a bit of a summary. And so... Uh, Smith is, is it, I, I suppose, one of Smith's major inspirations is the ancient philosophers and their their idea that the happy man is a good man and the good man is a happy man. It's it's still an idea that we. I mean, there's a much disagreement about it today, isn't it? About whether people are naturally good and corrupted, as it were, from Absolutely. the outside, or whether Absolutely. we contain yes. the this badness within us that has to be harnessed, or yep. can go either way. Um, did he have a view of how humans develop, how we grow and behave, that he based this on? Yeah, well, what he, what he, the, the way he, he, his great book, Before the Wealth of Nations, which is the one that he's famous for now, was called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And the question that he posed to himself is, if we start off as a little ball of, well, what Freud would have called ego and what he called self-love, uh, how do we do anything? How does society function at all? So he tells this story, and he tells the story of the the child who looks for love, looks for approval, and finds that some of the things that he does, and I'm afraid I'll have to say he most of the time, because that's what I'm afraid Adam didn't give women too much of a look in in his discussions. Um, and 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 if he looks around and he says, and and he's looking for approval, and he finds that he gets approval from some things and he doesn't get approval for other things. That is the beginning of, of the child internalising the social mores of his time. 
I guess it's a bit like a secular view of um, the Christian idea of original sin, is it? Well, but I with, guess it with is. self-interest brought in too. It, I guess it is. Uh, that's the, uh, but, but what it's doing is it's, it's taming and transforming and socialising self-interest because the project that he's on ultimately is to say that virtue is really a fully developed, fully matured, fully socialised form of self-interest. And once you can get, once people appreciate that, you're going to get a lot further, according to Smith, than if you keep telling them God tells you to be good and God tells you to ignore what's good for you. Of course, and this is very interesting because most people tend to think of Smith as primarily an economist or only an economist, but you're saying the, the economics came from a much broader theory of morality. Well, you see, the two books, The Theory of Moral Sentiments and The Wealth of Nations, do exactly the same thing with self-interest because what Smith does in The Wealth of Nations is he, t- he, he takes self-interest and everybody says, everybody thinks the Wealth of Nations is about a celebration of self-interest. But let me just read you the mo- probably the most famous passage in Smith and I'll, I'll kind of annotate it as I go. It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. Now, that's, that's uh, well, I'll go on. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love and never talk to them of our own necessities, but of their advantages. Now, what's happening there? Firstly, that's a conversation. It's a social conversation between two people and therefore to be presumed to be a civilising conversation between strangers. But the most critical point is we address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-interest. The self-interests are being exchanged. As he says somewhere else, self-love is not enough. Self-love is not enough until it is applied to someone else's self-love. So that's the key to markets for Adam Smith. Mm. And his ideal was that that, what you call a conversation, would be conducted on grounds of equality, wasn't it? Which is why he ultimately came to support free markets and was opposed to monopoly, for example. Yeah, now what he's, it's important to understand that what he's saying there is not that the rich don't have an advantage because he, does, he thinks that they do, but immediately after that passage, he compares our conduct in getting our dinner with the conduct of a pet, of a pet dog, or he, I think he just calls it an animal, uh, in, getting, in an animal trying to get what it wants from another human being. How does it get it? It begs. How does a beggar get it? It begs. And so what Smith is saying is that this kind of relation between strangers, the market kind of relation, is a wholly more dignified kind of relation than, the, than a relationship of begging or a relationship of power. How did Smith's um, contemporaries respond to this? I mean, was it considered radical and new and shocking or did it fit in with the way they were going anyway? Well, it's quite interesting. Smith was, uh, until about 1790, Smith was regarded as a pretty radical kind of guy and a big, fav- a big favourite of the French revolutionaries. And um, he was uh, tamed fairly shortly <laughs> after the French Revolution. He died in 1790 and his first, I think this is correct, that his first biographer who wrote at about that time had to tailor some of the things that he was saying about Smith's view of religion for uh, fear of the heresy laws. So he, he, Smith ended up getting rather tamed. Uh, he was no socialist, but he, he said what he said 
um, in a sense, on behalf of the poor and the weak. And his books, particularly Wealth of Nations, but also Moral Sentiments, are absolutely shot through with the most scourging attacks on on the wealthy and the powerful. <laughs> which, is, which is not at all the view people have of him today, is it? No, certainly not. You're listening to Counterpoint on ABC's Radio National. Uh, where our guest is Nicholas Gruen, and we're trying to lift the veil of ignorance that covers one of the most important thinkers of our civilization, who is uh, Adam Smith. Um, you've written, I think, about the fact that there was this dialectic of self-interest. Can you talk a bit more about monopolies and cabals, why he felt that they were such a, a moral affront almost? Yeah, well, well, Smith, Smith is famous for pointing out some of the ways in which monopolies are economically damaging, but in fact, what he cared about was that they were a moral affront because what a, what a monopoly represents is a person starting from, likely from a position of wealth and power. And what's, what's he saying? He's saying, I don't want to go into the marketplace and meet the needs of the people who are buying from me. I want them to have to buy from me. So I want to revert back to the older form of relationship and the more primitive form of human relationship, which is a relationship of patronage and power. Any idea what he would have thought of, uh, of our economy today, you know, the, the economy that exists in the West with oh, globalisation? This so is, yes, the thing about Smith is that it's a bit like the Bible for people. <laughs> um, but I was, uh, I was reading a website the other day of a, of a fairly libertarian um, organisation and, and it came to the end of the article and it said I think quite rightly that Smith can be regarded as a, a father of libertarianism but he can also be regarded as a father of social democracy. There were some basic things that Smith was in favour of like state promotion of education, state promotion of infrastructure which were both ahead of their, their time and involved the growth of government but he was certainly against tyrannical government and he certainly was no socialist. He, he wasn't really particularly interested in redistribution of wealth, although he did actually talk about uh, taxes on luxuries being not such a bad thing. Do you, um, you know, we've talked about his general philosophy to do with morality and, and people in a general sense and the application to economics. Did he have much to say about other areas such as the structure of society or the form of government? Well, he had a plan to write a third book, <laughs> and there are various there are various explanations as to why he didn't write that book. But uh, uh, he he was going the third book was going to be uh, was going to be on jurisprudence, which is really about really about government. My own feeling uh, is that uh, he was really um, he was against he he was against power. You know, he 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 was hostile to to power, uh, but he was in some ways, he was a, a, a conservative person. He certainly didn't want to turn the place upside down because he had such a high regard for the way in which people, he had a lot of respect for the way in which people had already solved problems in the world and the way, an example being the evolution of language, the evolution of markets and so on. So it's a nice mixture and we can all read into him our favourite theories <laughs> about what ought to be done. One of the influences I think you've indicated before is that he had he had uh, a certain influence on Charles Darwin. Tell us about that. Well, um, I guess the most fundamental thing about Smith is that Smith is the first person that I know of to bring right to the foreground the idea of order without design. This idea that things of fabulous 
complexity, utility and felicity can be generated without anyone, without anyone designing them at all. And uh, this was tremendously influential with the thinking of someone like Friedrich Hayek later on, but it was also a template for Darwin. Now Darwin's immediate um, thinking was more around Malthus, who talked about the struggle for survival, and that really got Darwin thinking. But the but but uh, economics, English economics, was the was the breeding ground for Darwin's ideas, and Smith was right at the head of that, if not the. Uh, if not the most immediate cause of his thinking. Darwin acknowledged that, did he? Yes, he did. All oh, right. Uh, did, um, did Smith use the term the invisible hand? Three times, and usually with irony. Uh, once he quoted Shakespeare and so on. Um, it's not a... It, it, it's, you know, a huge amount has been made of it, and I guess that's because economists were able to turn it into a theorem very quickly, and so they all went hunting for the theorem in the words. And... Uh, I think that's a bit of a mistake. He's, uh, you know, that was a nice turn of phrase that he came up with. Right. We're all looking for a soundbite, aren't you? Okay. <laughs> Thanks very much, Nicholas. Nicholas Gruen runs Lateral Economics, and he's also the chairman of Peach Discount Mortgage Broking. If you'd like to comment on uh, Adam Smith or anything else, you can send us an email via our webpage. That's at abc.net.au.